So I was about 13. I was away on a, a school trip going to see the Roman sites at Bath. And in the afternoon, we had a bit of spare time, and me and my friends were hanging around wondering what to do. Uh, after a while, I approached a, a posh-looking, middle-aged woman and said, excuse me, is there a virgin in Bath? She looked at me for a long, shocked moment, and then said at last, oh, you mean the shop? <laughs> Talking about sex and sexuality can be challenging and embarrassing. Um, this season at King's, we're doing this series about, but what about? Looking at hard questions that we face, and sometimes hard questions that people ask us. And this week, we've got a key one, uh, one about sexuality, and particularly, or to put it bluntly, is God homophobic? What does God think about sexuality, and in particular about homosexuality? Sexuality can be a hard topic to address. It's hard because it touches on deep questions of, of our identity, who we are, who our friends and, and family members are. It's hard because it's, it's, it's a huge topic. We're, we're only going to scratch the surface today, really, in terms of, of where we go, um, talking about things. Um, it's hard because it's, it's deeply personal. Um, and it can be hard because of both history and the sort of current noise and the discrimination and anger, you know, both in the church and in our culture at times. And it can also be hard because of our own feelings, our own prejudices, our own loves. So I come, in one sense, hesitantly, uh, aware of my own shortcomings, my own ignorance, and also brokenness and prejudice to this talk. And I'm aware that we, as a diverse group of people, may feel or believe many different things on this issue. And yet, I'm really eager to talk on this. Because I'm convinced that the gospel of Jesus is good news. Good news for all. There's no exception. Heterosexual, same-sex attracted or, or non-heterosexual, wherever we are, the gospel is good news. So, to start off asking this question, is God homophobic? We ought to just first sort of think about what, actually, what homophobia actually is. The Oxford English Dictionary defines a homophobia as a dislike of or prejudice against homosexual people. A dislike of or prejudice against homosexual people. Is God homophobic? Well, the simple answer is no. No. A resounding no. He does not dislike. He is not prejudiced against people who are same-sex attracted. No. He loves each one of us. He loves all of us, whomever we are attracted to, if you like. He loves those who are same-sex attracted, who are non-heterosexual. Uh, he loves those who are heterosexual. He loves us all. It says in John 3.16,
God so loved the world. The world is everyone. <laughs> you know, the world is everyone. There's no one apart from a few astronauts up in the International Space Station or whatever who aren't currently on the world, and they'll be coming back, we hope. Um, yeah, he loves everyone. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It says in the book of Romans that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. All of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. And yet all who trust in him are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jesus died to bring God's love to us all, including those who may be same-sex attracted, as he died for us all. I cannot emphasize this enough, partly because the church and many Christians have not always been welcoming to those who are same-sex attracted. At times we've acted unkindly and unfairly and we've not shown the love of God to all. And yet, I also need to say that there are many more complex issues involved here. And particularly this question of what does God think about homosexual activity or lifestyle? And we're going to be talking about that as we go on. Um, But as I've been researching this issue, thinking, reading, praying, I've had lots of help from various places that I've looked at. I've been really helped particularly by um, a guy called Ed Shaw. He's a pastor of a church in Bristol. Um, And I wanted to play this short video um, of his, his own story. Now, we're hoping the technology will work. The other story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, he has more to say than this. It was all going so well. <laughs> I think if you press the CC button, it might help you. Uh-huh. Where's that? Is that working? Apparently, if we press CC, we'll get subtitles.
Check. Okay. I'm thinking about the Virgin Megastore joke at the beginning. Uh, they're not around anymore, no, are they? So does everyone realise what that, who that was, what that is? It's really bad news <laughs> when your jokes have to be explained. Yeah, <laughs> but I thought I'd just explain it. Probably maybe uh, to the younger members of the audience, it was uh, <laughs> a music store, a record shop, yeah, where you went and bought your music and your CDs. Oh, yes. Records were these things, and CDs as well. CDs were these things that you bought and then you put into the stereo players. Physical things, yes, that you then put in to play. And uh, Nick was obviously looking for one of those uh, around Brighton. No, Brighton, Bath. Bath, sorry. He's from Brighton. That's why I yeah, thought Brighton. Okay. Um, yes, there we go. Uh, right. I thought I'd explain that for everybody just in case. Okay, so I can play on here. Let's do that then. I'm a Christian. I'm a. Okay, you're starting. Ready? Ready. I'm a Christian. I'm a son and a brother and a nephew. I'm also a member of the church family at Emmanuel Bristol, uh, and I serve that church as their associate pastor. Why some people are same-sex attracted is a very hotly contested subject. There's books I read that tell me it's my fault that one day I woke up and decided to uh, fancy some men. That's not true. There are some books that tell me it's my parents' fault that my relationship with my parents is the big determining factor. That's not true. I have a great relationship with both my parents. There are other people that tell me it's my genes. No really scientific evidence for that. There are some people that tell me it's because I wasn't very good at uh, contact sports, that I can't see a ball, and that's why um, I'm same-sex attracted. Loads of theories. What is the answer? Why are some people same-sex attracted? I think the best answer is we just don't know, and some people are. Is it fair that I am? Well, I am, and God is good, and God has created me to be the person who I am. I can rage against that if I want to, but isn't particularly constructive. What I can do is see the good that God's brought out of that and how he used it in my life and other people's lives to help me become more and more like Jesus, to help them become more and more like Jesus too. There's a huge amount of confusion over what terminology you use in this whole area of homosexuality. Do you say that you're gay? Uh, there's been language that's been used at different times in different places. We tend to use the language of same-sex attraction. We do that because um, the language I'm gay has so often been uh, used to signify that somebody is identifying themselves by their sexuality and that somebody's embraced a, a lifestyle that is an active homosexual lifestyle. We talk about experiencing same-sex attraction because it just includes more people and includes us. And certainly it's a sort of piece of language that's been used more and more by people in, within the gay community to just recognise that not everybody's happy with what has become quite political language of gayness. I think what I find so convincing uh, about what the Bible says about uh, sexuality and sex and marriage and homosexuality is that there's a consistent line all the way through, right from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. There's just a really clear 
uh, stress on the fact that marriage is for life, that marriage is for a man and a woman, and that sex is just for marriage and shouldn't happen outside. And that happens in Genesis, but it happens all the way through the Bible. And the Bible was written into loads of different cultures. It, uh, it deals with a whole range of human experience, and yet it still has that clear and consistent line all the way through. And that's what really helps me be convinced that the Bible says that, that homosexual sex, that uh, sexual relationships between people of the same sex are wrong, because at no point, in no book, is there even a hint that that might be, that that might be right in God's sight, that it might be permissible. So it's just the clarity of it all. And then there's also the fact that, you know, throughout human history, up until very recently, no Christians have ever taken any different line on the Bible. So all the great Christians that I respect and want to follow, whose books I read, have been really clear that marriage is for life between a man and a woman and that sex is for marriage. That would be true of some ancients that I like reading, like St Augustine or St Gregory. It would be true of some of the more recent authors that I love reading, like a G.K. Chesterton or C.S. Lewis. It's only very, very recently that people have begun to change their minds. And the only reason I can see for people changing their mind is what's happening in society around us, not what the Bible says. I can live life without sex because sex isn't the only way for deep and meaningful relationships with other people. Obviously, it can be something that brings great depth and meaning to a relationship between a man and woman, and the Bible really encouraging of that. But the Bible's also really clear that deep and meaningful relationships happen in a whole range of contexts. So there are some wonderful friendships in the Bible which are really, really deep um, and really, really loving and really, really caring. David and Jonathan would be perhaps the most famous example of that. And I find that in my life, although I might not have somebody that I am sleeping with, I have loads of people who I have deep and meaningful relationships with that aren't sexual in any way, shape or form, but provide me with, with the set of people you need to have alongside you in life as a Christian as a human being. There are times in life uh, when I do think and I do feel that my experience of same-sex attraction is unfair and that I do struggle with that. But actually increasingly I'm seeing the good that God has brought about in my life through my experience of same-sex attraction. It's helped me grasp his love for me. It's helped me grasp um, so much about uh, what it means to be open and honest with people, sharing uh, my experience of same-sex Sexual attraction has deepened friendships, has allowed other people to be open and honest about what they experience and what they go through. It's been a really uh, great moment in our church's life for me to be open about this. It's encouraged other people to be open about what they're going through too. It's been a really, really positive thing. Um, it's one of the things that God has most used in my life to make me more and more like Jesus. And it's one of the things that God has most used in my life to help me point other people to Jesus too. And so there are bad days, but on the good days, I see with absolute clarity the good that God has brought out of my experience of same-sex attraction. And I'm really, on those days, grateful to him for it. Okay, so we've got another video to come in a moment. We'll see if you know, is even more out of sync with that one. Um, but I find that Ed's story there um, really moving um, as he talks about... Oh, wrong way. Okay, that's not working now. Oh, well, we're not having a good day technologically. Uh, thank you, Dan. Uh, I find Ed's story 
you know, really moving as he talks about what it is to be fulfilled um, in that context and how he can live in that way. And I think that's really important because it touches on two key and sometimes complementary and sometimes conflicting views in our culture about the way to true happiness and fulfillment. One way people tend to think is a true, it's about being truly yourself. It's about being who you want to be. Um, finding your identity, choosing what you want to be and expressing that. And in this context, particularly in terms of sexual self-expression. Um, when I am truly being who I want to be, then I'll be happy. A second way of thinking is that true fulfillment, true happiness, comes in a romantic and or sexual relationship. That when I'm with this man or woman that I really want, then I'll be happy. Uh, and both of these are plausible ideas because in both cases, how we live in these regards, it can bring a measure of happiness and of content. And society would look at someone like Ed, who's chosen to be single and celibate, and ask the question, how can you be happy? But if we're honest with ourselves and others, if we look at the world around us, we can ask, is that really enough? Um, are people who are really living in that way fulfilled, truly fulfilled? Perhaps in part for some, but not often. And maybe not for many. Could be a bit depressing. But I'm not depressed because I know it's not the full picture. These things aren't the key to true fulfillment. When I think about someone who lived life truly to the full, fulfilled, purposeful, compassionately, powerfully, full of love, I think of Jesus, the most fulfilled, purposeful, real person I know of. He was single, celibate, leading a mixed community of married and unmarried women and men. He was not only an example of fulfillment in his person, but he made some startling claims about himself in this light. He said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, i.e. me, he's saying, whom you've sent. Amazing claims. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. They're extraordinary claims. If most people made them, we'd think that they were mad or just plain bad. When Jesus says it and then proves his veracity, his truth by everything that he does, everything he is, and ultimately by dying and then rising from the death, I'm inclined to think that he's God. And how do we get this fulfillment? Here's the really interesting thing. Jesus says it's not by holding on to what we think or want to be. It's not by the perfect relationship with someone we love. But it's by going to him. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily 
and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. It's by becoming his disciple, coming to him. The Bible calls it repenting, changing our way of thinking, turning around to make him Lord rather than ourselves. And as we do it, he gives us a new identity in him. It says in John chapter 1, To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The path to fulfillment then is not ultimately found in what we choose to be in terms of self-expression or whom we choose to be in terms of relationships, but it's who we choose to be in God and what our relationship with him is like. I want to show another video. I might be sort of taking my life into my hands here. Um, But we're going to show another video talking about a lady called Anne and about how she came to find fulfillment um, in God. And can we play that at the same time as this? Uh Oh. No, this has lost it now. Okay, and now my phone's lost it. Right. Now it's connected on my other phone. At least it should be. Okay, right, we're going to give up on Anne's talk. Basically, ah, you're there, there, but you haven't got sound on that one, and this one hasn't really. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna forget this talk, but I will send a uh, I will send a link to this. Um, but basically, Anne talks about her experience. Uh, no, we won't bother. Anne talks about her experience growing up uh, gay, um, going to university, um, throwing herself into the LGBT uh, life there, and then um, meeting some Christians, and being overwhelmed by the friendship and love of these Christians, and going along to church and discovering to her amazement that God loves her, that God could love her, um, you know, despite you know, who she felt herself to be. And she tells her story of actually um, discovering that, you know, though she is same-sex attracted, though she has struggled and had difficulties along the way, yet in it finding God's love and finding the love of God's people that has helped her through that. Um, It's a great story. I would really encourage you to look on the livingout.org website and look at the stories there because there's there's powerful stuff. Um, And she's found the path to fulfilment is not so much in being what we choose to be, not so much in who we're with, but it's in being whom God wants us to be. And it's in being with him. So, if sex is not the ultimate fulfillment, what's it for? As Ed said, it's clear from the Bible that the right place for sex is heterosexual marriage. But but why should that be? If two men or women love each other, why does God not want them? 
to express that love sexually, particularly in the context of a loving, consensual, lifelong partnership, even now marriage under, under uh, UK uh, legislation. Why does it matter to him what consenting adults choose to do? You know, the, the church has been rightly strong on marriage, and we often focus on the advantages of covenant, of stability, of sharing, of support, of friendship, of care for children. But all of these can be features of non-heterosexual relationships, and also all of those can be absent from many heterosexual marriages. So we can't say that that in itself is the only reason. The truth is the Bible doesn't tell us precisely why God doesn't approve of consenting, committed, loving, homosexual relationships other than appealing to creation and God saying, you know, I made male and female um, together to represent his image. But if we look at how God planned heterosexual marriage and the reasons for that, I think it helps us to understand why God reserves sexual intimacy for this alone. This is getting into slightly speculative theology here. Uh, so I sort of think it through. But I think before the world began, God looked ahead to world history and he saw the incredible sin-driven ability of humanity to be divided, to be split in conflict over even the most simple of things. And right at the core um, of all cultures and of our very being, he put something to show us it could be different. He took the most fundamental difference between people. Not the differences of race, of class, of language, of location, but the biological difference of sex. Male and female are so different, you know, they've literally got different chromosomes, you know, different body parts. And I know the questions of mental and emotional differences between the sexes can be controversial and can involve huge generalizations, but I think they tend to think and feel differently. As, in the, as well. And I think God said to himself, as it were, you know what, I'm going to take these fundamental differences and make that the driving force of humanity. If a woman and a man can willingly choose to bind themselves together in a loving partnership, there's some hope for humanity getting it together too. And when a woman and a man do, this lovingly, joyfully, there is a possibility not only of pleasure, perhaps the greatest pleasure on earth, but also of new life coming from this act. In response to a question about divorce, Jesus said, at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Cue Spice Girls song, no, we're not going to go there. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Something incredible happens in marriage. Two profoundly different individuals come together, and in some way they become one new entity, symbolized by their physical sexual union, but actually stretching to encompass all areas of their life together. Their lives become so intertwined, if you like, that these two different people, fundamentally different even at the biological level, become one flesh. 
Marriage is like God's picture language. His way of us understanding how to overcome our differences, our divisions. And a crucial feature of it is that sense of difference. That man and woman are these different sexes, different in their very being, yet in a good heterosexual marriage, come together to become this one new thing, one flesh, in a way that all other kinds of sexual expression, sex on your own, masturbation, exploitative sex, casual sex, uh, even sex in a committed but unmarried relationship or in a same-sex marriage can just not be. Sex is not just about ourselves. On some deep level, it's spiritual. It's about God too. So, that's why. That's a picture of why. It's not a complete answer. There's more I could say. But God has kept it for this thing. Okay, I want to talk going on, bearing all this in mind, how are we going to live as God's people in a way that welcomes including though everyone, including those who are same-sex attracted? And this is where being God's family is so important. What is a family? It's a group of different people, different ages, sexes, interests, but all sharing some kind of common identity and purpose, whether that's a matter of genes or DNA, marriage or adoption. The invitation that Jesus brought was that we can all be part of God's family. Adopted by him, accepted, loved, forgiven, not on the basis of what we do or how we act, but by grace, based on faith in Christ's life, death and resurrection for us. Because he died for us, taking our sin and shame on himself, we're welcomed into this new relationship of love with God if we choose to trust and follow him. And as a family, we need to value everyone. We need to recognize uh, every person has a place. Every person has a role. I had more to speak on, which I'm not going to go on here. But it talks about um, how, uh, Paul talks about how singleness actually is pleasing to the Lord because we can focus on him. And we as a church need to welcome and value everyone and all their gifts. And finally, um, I want to talk um, just finally about overcoming prejudice. You see, God is not prejudiced. He welcomes all. He loves all. We read earlier that he so loved the world that he gave his son, Jesus. He may challenge people to make difficult decisions about lifestyle, about who they are and how they are and how they live. But he welcomes all. And at the moment, we are in a, an interesting time as a church where is this huge shift of opinions and views in the world and particularly on issues to do with sex. Um, and sometimes we can feel threatened and we can feel like you know things are moving away from a way of thinking that many of us may have and that can feel threatening. Um, but I felt like... You know, as I was praying about this talk, I felt like God actually wanted to say, don't think of the threat, but think of the opportunity. Because the thing is, God wants us to be welcoming to all. God wants us to extend love to all, because he loves everyone. He wants us to learn how to show love to all. And when we face that sort of challenge, when we face different ways of thinking and changes in society, it's a chance for us to learn how it is to welcome, even to welcome people that we may disagree with. 
I feel like God wants to do something in our hearts to be truly welcoming as he is welcoming. Okay, we're going to... Um, just going to pray as we close. Um, it might be that you're here today and... Um, Maybe the, 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 the picture that Matt brought about the prodigal son or the two sons of the father um, speak to you. God wants you to know that all are welcome back to him, that he loves you, that he wants you to know his love wherever you are, uh, wherever you're at. There is nothing that separates us from his love. It may be that... Um, that you or, or someone you know is struggling with these issues that we've talked about, same-sex attraction and, and other issues of sexuality, uh, I just felt like God wanted you to know that you're loved. You're loved by him. He cares so much for you. His heart is for you. Whatever you may feel at times, he loves you. Um, and I felt like you might be here today and say, actually, you know, I'm aware of my own prejudice. <laughs> I'm aware of my own feelings, which are not always positive to people who believe differently from me or who live in ways that I don't approve of. And I felt like God saying, you know, he wants to change our hearts to know him. I'm going to pray. And I just encourage you, if that's you, if God's speaking to you today, respond to him in your hearts. Ask him for his help. And then there'll be opportunity to talk and pray more if people would like to later. Father, I want to thank you that because of Jesus we can know your love. Whoever we are, wherever we are, you welcome us all because you loved us. You love us so much. I pray you'd help us to trust you and to put our trust in you. If we're far off, would you help us to take the steps back to you? If we're feeling unloved and guilty, would you let us know your forgiveness and your grace? If we're knowing our hearts to be prejudiced, would you change us so that we welcome all and love all as you truly do? In Jesus' name, amen.